0: Hey folks, Cameron Riley. Before we start this episode of The Napoleon Show, I want to give a big plug for David Markham's new book, The Road to St Helena. It's just come out in the last couple of weeks and I read an early draft of this book a few months ago. I have to say it's a very exciting read. It's about what happens to Napoleon after Waterloo. And of course, it's by our own J. David Markham. Now, I've got a challenge for you. I would like to see this book hit the best-seller lists in Amazon. In the history section, I reckon we can make this the number one best-seller in the history section, but I'm going to need your help. I need all of you, when you listen to this show, to go to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast website, which is napoleon.thepodcastnetwork.com, in case you've forgotten. Click on the link in the latest blog post to David's book, order it from Amazon, Try and make it the number one best-selling book in the history section in Amazon. Do you think we can do it? Do we have the numbers? Can we pull it off? What would Napoleon do? That's what I want to ask you. Can we galvanize people? I should, I should give you like a Napoleonic speech. Audience of the show, history looks down upon you. Can you make this book a number one seller on Amazon? Your grandchildren will tell the stories about the days when you drove this book to number one. (laughs) Please, support David, support the book. I'm going to buy at least five copies, and I hope you do the same. Give them to friends and family for Christmas, for birthdays, for Mother's Day, for Father's Day, for Valentine's Day. Any excuse, give them copies of David's book. They'll thank you. Your grandchildren will remember you fondly in the annals of history. Cheers. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to a very sad episode 45. Quatre I'm not sure if that's right. i probably not. Uh, of the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast. How do you say 45 in French, David Markham?
1: Quatre cinq, I, believe. Quatre cinq?
0: Oh, I wasn't too far off then.
1: You were close. You sound a little bit more, more uh, Spanish than French there.
0: Right. Uh, it must be the, uh, um, olive oil that, um, I had on my lunch. Uh, Welcome, welcome back, uh, David and I. Actually, did episode forty-four yesterday, and quite unusual for us. We're doing forty-five today because we want to kill this bastard off. <laughs> no, no, no.
1: Yeah, we were just we, we were like in the middle of it. Do I know you? And we Do ran, I? Know, are you? Are you the Cameron Riley that I thought I knew?
0: We ran out of time yesterday, and 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 uh, we thought let's just get it done while we're while it's still fresh in our minds. So. Um, yeah, we think we—it's never quite sure. David, famous, as he always does, just before we went to air, David said, "This will be a short one," and uh, which usually means that you know I'm going to have to pull the pin on this about two hours from now, and we'll still <laughs> we'll still have only covered like a day in his life, but we'll see how we go. Can you even remember where we finished up last night, sir?
1: Yeah, what we were going to do uh, starting today is is really to talk about his his medical uh, treatment. Uh, one of the really interesting and important stories about Napoleon's exile on, on Saint Helena is the medical treatment that he received and the the, the soap opera that that surrounded the. The selection of, of of doctors throughout the years that he was there, and even before he actually arrived. So today we'll talk a little bit about about that, and and I've written extensively on that. I have a a, a book called Napoleon and Doctor Verling on Saint Helena, which uh, Pen and Sword published uh, a, a couple of three years ago, uh, and I've done some journal articles on on the topic. It's it's an area that I've researched a fair amount and And I'll try not to get us bogged down into too many details but i I think there's some interesting things to be said and then we'll we'll talk about his death and and his burial and 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 then his uh sort of oddly triumphant uh, return to uh to paris many many years later and and you're right it's it's gonna be a sad episode and 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 in more than one way uh assuming that we finish. We will in fact, as you sort of, you know, bluntly put it, kill the poor fellow off here. Uh but we'll also come to the end of of our chronological look at Napoleon. Uh now I hasten to assure our listeners that this is not the end of the Napoleon one oh one podcast, because, as most of you out there know, we plan on Looking at his legacy, looking at some specific reforms, we may end up, you know, covering some stuff uh, in more detail that we covered before. Uh, as per many suggestions, we want to look at at least some of the other personalities uh, that are Napoleonic, uh, you know, people like some of the ones on, on St. Helena, I suppose, uh, some of his major marshals, uh, people like Fouché and Talleyrand we might have a look at. And I still hope to bring a guest or two on uh, to to talk about some things as well, some some distinguished uh, professor friends of mine who 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 unlike me actually know what they're talking about. And you
0: think we're going to get through all of the stuff you mentioned earlier in this episode today in the next sixty seventy minutes?
1: As I always you, am, I'm convinced of it. You
0: genuinely believe that after two and a half years. <laughs> You still think that that's going to happen? That's what I like about well, it. It's, well, this, it's this childlike naivety.
1: No, 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 Cameron. This is one of the benefits of my medication. You know, it gives me a a, a sense of reality that, that may or may not be <laughs> quite quite as accurate as it could be. Um, okay, well, let me let me kick it's it. A, off. I guess you could call that a side effect.
0: Yes, a, a side effect of your uh, medication. Let me let me kick it off because I know I won't get much to say in this episode. You you, you uh, will write quite rightfully um, do most of the talking about his uh, medical condition and his doctors. But I'll just I'll throw this bit in because I, again I think it's just an interesting side of his declining um, uh, health and mental faculties. We talked in the show yesterday about uh, the the poisoning that we both believe was probably going on at the time while Napoleon was in St Helena and how this poisoning, this this arsenic, this rat poison, whatever it was that was in his system would have been affecting his mental faculties. Um, In Vincent Cronin's book, he talks about how, and I'm hoping I'm going to talk about um, the Bertrands leaving in 1820. Is that going to ruin your chronological account at all?
1: Well, I'm going to back up to before he actually arrives on St. Helena, but if you want to talk oh. about them, go, go right ahead. You, you're going to go back in
0: time and still think we're going to get him uh, not only dead and buried but back to France in this episode? You
1: Well, de- depending on how much you continue to blather on, I don't know. <laughs> oh,
0: you can see the fabric of this relationship crumbling before <laughs> your very eyes after two and a half years, people.
1: Oh, our relationship couldn't crumble uh in in, in an earthquake. Just, I wouldn't worry about that, my friend.
0: But that was a segue, just like Napoleon's relationship with Fanny Bertrand. <laughs>
1: uh, <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, you've been reading your you've been reading your Cronin again, I can tell. I have. Um so
0: in uh late eighteen in, in sort of July eighteen twenty, um, Napoleon fell, uh fell sick again. He was complaining of pains in his right side. And um The Bertrands, Fanny Bertrand, uh, decided that their children who were growing older needed a a European schooling. So she persuaded her husband that they should take the kids back to Europe and then return to continue looking after Napoleon. Obviously, he was still a relatively young man at this stage and and there was every reason to think that he was going to live quite a long time. But when Napoleon heard about this, that Fanny wanted them to leave and go to Europe, he apparently became incredibly, not just upset, but a little bit kind of volatile towards the whole situation. Now, he'd had a pretty good relationship with Fanny, they'd had lots of long discussions, uh, unlike uh, Albin de Montfalon, there, there was no affair, sexual affair happening, uh, but he had a, this relationship, like Napoleon liked the company of women, obviously to a point, um, as long as they knew their place <laughs> and just charmed him and care, entertained care, him.
1: Care, careful now. I, I I'm not going to go that far.
0: Oh well, I think so. I, I mean, I think he was he was a man's man. He spent most of his time out on the um, battlefield with men, or in the you know the chambers with men. But it was. Um, he had I think he had a strange relationship with women uh, uh, you know he's yeah, anyway we won 't go into that right now we we'll, we'll probably do a special show on his Napoleon and women <laughs> in
1: well the, and, uh, and, and, and I think we absolutely should i yeah. think you should remember that that 's an excellent idea i'll be happy to do that
0: one so um apparently the the fact that she decided to to go back to Europe absolutely destroyed him and according to i mean Cronin 's perspective on this is it He almost took it as an affront to his manhood, that he wasn't good enough for her, almost like breaking up with a lover. He felt that, you know, he wasn't good enough for her, there were other things that she'd rather do, other places that she'd rather be. And Cronin writes, "...from there Napoleon went on to construct an irrational fantasy. Fanny, he decided, was not what she seemed. This dignified scion of the Dillon family was in fact a whore, a fallen woman who slept with all the English officers who passed her house, the most degraded of women." The idea so obsessed him that he went so far as to speak about it to Bertrand. You ought to have made your wife a prostitute. He added that he had been planning to sleep with Fanny himself, but now she was off and Napoleon implied that it was good riddance. All this was fantasy, the lashing out of an imagination terribly afflicted by loneliness, a manhood crushingly humiliated. The same fantasy showed in other small ways. For example, speaking of Desiree Clary, who um, listeners may or may not recall, Desiree was the woman he was involved with very, very early on in his career before he met Josephine and he kind of broke up with Desiree to um, uh, pursue a relationship with Josephine and then Desiree went on to marry um, the the, the future king, of one of Napoleon's uh, generals who left and became the king of Sweden and she became Swedish royalty. Anyway, Napoleon boasted to Patron that he had had her maidenhood A claim belied by all the evidence, and another time he declared that in 1815, he ought to have cut off the heads of all of the opposition. These were petty yet understandable power boasts of a man from whom all power was being stripped. But I see it perhaps as i mean, when I read stories like that, to me they sound completely out of character to Napoleon. This is a guy who was always very much in control of what he said, when he said it, who he said it to... Thought through the consequences of his words and his actions, um, and yet uh, towards the end of his life, he, he seems to be slipping into some form of uh, you know rational delusional uh, feelings towards the people around him. And whilst it may, as Cronus says, have a lot to do with him, obviously you know losing all of his power and his prestige and being trapped on this island and treated harshly by. Hudson Lowe, I also wonder if his uh, mental faculties were being affected by the, the poison running around in his system and was slowly driving him, you know, a little bit crazy. What do you think?
1: Well, I, I think, first of all, yes, the, the, the poison, the, the arsenic uh, that, that that you and I believe he was ingesting. Uh, uh, and even – and by the way, there's no question he was ingesting uh, arsenic. Uh, there are some who I think foolishly believe it came you know, from natural causes or from the wallpaper or whatever, but but arsenic has clearly been found in heavy concentrations in, in Napoleon's hair. Uh and, and that may have been having an effect. But I, I think that if if Cronin is true uh in his relation of, of, of the story, and, and I'm a big fan of the Vincent Cronin book and I think Cronin is the best biographer of Napoleon uh that That I have read, I will leave it to others to to say whether or not I even come close to to him or not but or, or if others come close to him or surpass him, but to me cronin is 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 sort of the gold standard in in in, in my view uh uh so so i'll i'll take it, it face value every everything he says, and I think a lot of it is there in fact, a lot of that's actually i know is 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 out of uh know, some of the memoirs from the period. But I think if, if, if Napoleon had been able to, to see a modern shrink, modern psychiatrist, I think he probably would have been diagnosed with depression. Uh, his health was going south. He knew that you're talking about a period of time when he was already in pain. He was already having difficulties. And I'll probably mention a little bit about that later on. Uh, Maybe two or three shows from now when we finish this uh, segment uh, and 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 he's he's just you know when when people talk about what leads to depression, and you can read this in any sort of popular psychological article in in, in, in the press uh, major changes in your life are one of the major causes of depression of uh, divorces, uh, losing a job, changing a job, retiring, getting married, which you may think is is, is a good thing, and and, and it is, I hasten to add, but but it can in some cases lead to depression because your lifestyle has suddenly changed uh, dramatically. Now, that's not to say that a lot of folks don't get a little depression, they get over it, uh, but the bigger the change, and I'm guessing, and, and I'm certainly out of my field here, I'm not a shrink, I'm not a psychologist, our psychiatrist, uh, or, or, or a therapist, or a social worker, or any of the people who would know far better than I, uh, but I would guess that the the stunning nature of the change in Napoleon's life and the negative nature of that change, the the rapidity of that change and the continual worsening of that change as Sir Hudson Lowe's restrictions get more and more and more and more onerous and, and the bickering between his entourage, uh, becomes more and more petty. And, and frankly, and Napoleon writes this repeatedly, he's, he's sick to death of it. Why don't you people learn to get along? You don't like each other, you know, screw you, you know, get out. I mean, there's all sorts of stuff like this. So, yes, I think Napoleon was almost certainly deep in the throes of, of some kind of clinical depression. Uh, and this would affect how he interpreted things, uh, including, you know, the, 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 the Fanny Bertrand stuff that you're talking about and some of the other things. Uh, and I think we have to be very sympathetic toward Napoleon. And whether you thought Napoleon was the ogre of Corsica or the savior of Europe, uh, I don't think there's any question that uh, uh, this, this is what was going on in his life.
0: Yeah, I think you've got a great point there about depression, and, and certainly he had every reason to feel depressed, and, we, and it wouldn't be the first time. We know that he uh, attempted to commit suicide during the first abdication, so you know this was a man of great passion uh, for all things, not just for military matters. he was passionate about everything in his life, including his relationships. He was a very passionate man. We know that we talked early on in the series about uh, the letters that he used to write to josephine and uh, throughout their marriage um, and uh, people of great passions obviously uh, you know sometimes go through great highs and great lows, and if he had, if there was ever a reason for going through a great low, i guess uh Napoleon and St. Helena was about as low as you could get. Well, no, that's not quite true. It could get a lot lower. He wasn't thrown in a smelly, you know, dungeon. He was... Uh, yeah,
1: he wasn't put on one of the infamous uh, British hulks or something like that. So, yes, of course, it could have been worse. But for for a person like Napoleon, for all I know, he might have understood better and been able to adapt better to a straightaway prison. Uh, I'm not saying that that would have been a, a better option or anything, but but in a sense, the prison would have made so clear precisely what his situation was, whereas being given a a, a fairly large house by the standards of the island and 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 given you know uh, servants and 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 a sort of a a, a faux uh, a court uh, you know month Bertrand et cetera uh, given. Some level of recognition as somebody important, after all, a, a general uh, who was, uh, you know, a POW, a prisoner of war, uh, in in those days was treated quite well. Uh, so by being given some level of of higher level treatment, which allowed him to sort of pretend in his own mind and to some extent and in, in in the reality within the walls of Longwood, anyway that he still was running a court. In some ways that might have been crueler or, or, or more difficult for Napoleon psychologically, uh than than something like being, you know, put in Fort George, for example, which would have been of course a lot better than, than a Hulk or a regular prison uh or, or even into a prison. Uh but I don't know. I mean I don't know how Napoleon would have reacted to having been thrown in, in into a prison and certainly no one would want anyone to be thrown into a hulk. And a hulk would have been extremely unlikely because, you know, that was only for enlisted prisoners. I mean, even officers were never, as far as I know, ever ever thrown into, into the hulks. So once you were an officer uh, in the 19th century uh, system of war uh, on any side, uh, the French side or the British side or the Austrians or whatever, you were treated much, much better. In fact, we should do... Because I've written some some papers on on POWs, which I think our, our our listeners would enjoy. We should do a show on prisoners of war, which could be to, to some extent, you know, me reading or discussing some of the, the the research that I've done on British prisoners of war, as it happens, who were prisoned at uh, Verdun and elsewhere. It's really it's really a very different system, you know. In the United States today, we we have a presidential candidate, John McCain. United States Senator, and this is, by the way, this this is being recorded on the eighteenth of September of of two thousand and eight, which is an election year,
0: which was uh, before and, McCain had a heart attack and Sarah Palin became president. Well,
1: before that, <laughs> oh God, let's not even talk about that. Uh, but but your your impudence notwithstanding, the the uh, uh, the fact is, you know, he served time in 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 a prison camp in in Hanoi, Vietnam, back in the days of the Vietnam War, back in the 19 late 60s early 70s. And I'm sure his experience as, as an officer as, as as a pilot who was shot down was far 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 different than what officers uh, experienced uh, during the Napoleonic period. Uh and so yeah, we should we should we should talk about that. Hmm. But not tonight.
0: But not tonight. Okay, so over to you, sir. Let's talk about Napoleon's health. And I, I don't think we've discussed – I mentioned – I think well, we mentioned briefly in the last episode, Antomachie, but um, I don't know that we've talked much about Napoleon's medical care after O'Meara left.
1: No, we really haven't. And I'm, I'm going to uh, back up. I'm sure you and our listeners will forgive me if, 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 if while also rolling their eyes. I really want to, to back up and, and talk a little bit about – you know, the, 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 the overall medical uh, history of, of Napoleon, or at least the medical treatment history, I'm not going to get into, you know, a day-by-day account of Napoleon was sick today, Napoleon threw up today, et cetera. Uh, some of my work has done some of that. Uh, Vincent Crona's work does that. It seems to me I touch on that a little bit in, 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 in my biographies. And, and certainly, I do in in the Doctor Verling book. But I want to give a sort of an overview of of the really amazing story of Napoleon's uh, health care while he was on the island. And you have to admit. And and by the way, I will give the British uh, uh, credit for having some understanding of just how sensitive an issue this could be. And, and wanting to, at the very least, save face for themselves. And to some extent, I think, wanting Napoleon to have good health coverage. Because they know that the whole world will be watching. You know, uh, we mentioned the the Vietnam War uh, a while ago, or I mentioned it with with regard to, to Senator McCain. And uh, in, in 1968, the Democratic Convention in Chicago uh was besieged by many many protesters against that war and there was a police riot and and a lot of violence against the protesters and and many of the protesters would chant on on national uh, television you know the whole world is watching the whole world is watching which of course it was and that had a a, a deep effect on 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 America regardless of which side of that conflict you were on, and whether you thought the protester deserved it or the police were awful—you know, whatever your politics—it clearly had an impact. And and the, the British were were in 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 a similar situation in that everything they did was going to be under a microscope. People were going to be paying uh, attention to uh, what what the British uh, did, and so they they clearly did not want people to to judge their treatment poorly. And in any kind of a situation like an exile, an obvious concern would be uh, Napoleon's health or anyone's health. Enforced isolation is, I think, by definition, an unhealthy state of affairs. Uh, the climate in St. Helena which is oftentimes debated between those who are pro-British or, or pro-Napoleon, uh, was by many people not considered particularly great for one's health, especially where Longwood was. I think we mentioned this uh, earlier uh, a few times ago, that, that Longwood was in one of the least healthy parts of, of the island, windswept and, and, and bitter cold and super heat in the summer and so on. Uh, So, you know, the the whole situation was designed to create potential ill health. And the British were, to their credit, although, again, self-serving as well, they were determined to provide Napoleon a doctor with whom he, Napoleon, would have a, a reasonable level of comfort. But they also wanted the doctor to sort of be on, 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 on their side too, uh, letting them know uh, about uh, uh, health issues with Napoleon, letting them know if they heard, if the doctor heard any uh, escape plans or other activities that, that, that Hudson Lowe uh, and the British would, would like to know. They also wanted a doctor who was what we might call today politically correct. Uh, that is to say, unwilling to blame the climate of St. Helena, and thus by inference the British, for any of Napoleon's real or imagined health difficulties. So they wanted a good doctor for for Napoleon, but they wanted, ideally at least, that doctor to be uh, beholden to them. Uh, Although, as we'll see, they were willing to forego that uh, on, on, on two occasions. Napoleon naturally... Wanted a doctor, as we all would want, in whom he could place complete confidence and expect a reasonable level of confidentiality regarding his health. Now, numerous times Napoleon made it clear to his doctors that, of course, if you hear, you know, something that that's a breach of national security, as it were. In other words, if you hear there's talk of me escaping, I would understand that that's not medical, and you would feel compelled to tell the British. Uh, uh, but I don't want the the british hearing about my hemorrhoids or whatever else now napoleon didn't say hemorrhoids i'm g- giving that as an example but no one wants and when you get older you get some some unfortunate ailments and no one wants those things posted on the internet uh or or floating around the headquarters of of sir hudson lowe uh so you know napoleon has this desire and The British have their desire, and they're in conflict, and there's going to be problems. There's going to come a time when Napoleon absolutely refuses to accept anyone who he might see uh, as a puppet of his British uh, uh, gayler. Now, at the beginning, however, both sides were, were, were greatly desirous of finding a solution that would work, especially that would work for Napoleon. And indeed, the British asked Napoleon to choose a French doctor. So this part about reporting to to the British government, uh, to to the to the governor on the island, initially was not a factor with the British. And indeed, Napoleon selected uh, and had already selected uh, Foureau de Bourgard. Okay. Now, this was a French doctor who admired the emperor and had assumed he would be going with Napoleon to America. Well, going with Napoleon to America to be his private position in, in living in luxury someplace in a, in, 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 in a somewhat free country, uh, that's one thing. Going onto this remote island of St. Helena uh, was quite another and so the French doctor uh, gracefully uh, declined the, the, the honor. Well, now the British are in, in, in a bit of a quandary. So, you know, they, there is no other French doctor available. Uh, Napoleon's you know, leaving quickly. They're not going to hang around while he, you know, posts advertisements in, in, in Paris to, to get volunteers. Uh, and so they turn to uh, Barry uh, Olmera who was the surgeon of the Belotheron, the ship. And O'Mara agreed to do it. But he insisted, and this turns out to be an issue, he insisted that he would remain a British officer. Well, you can understand this. He he had a military career. Uh, He wasn't at all clear on what kind of money Napoleon would have to pay him if he went back into private life and signed on as Napoleon's position. Uh, and, you know, being a doctor to a, to a POW, no matter how famous you, you're, you're just not really sure what to expect. Uh, but you have some protection if you're a British officer, uh subject to British, uh, regulations and, and getting a British paycheck. And so O'Mara says, yes, I will be glad to serve as Napoleon's position and I'll do a good job for him. Uh, but, uh, uh, I want to remain in in the service, and 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 the British government says yes, that's that's fine with us. Uh, but that's going to be a problem. Uh, there's clearly going to be a conflict now, sort of an internal conflict in Barry O'Mara, trying to serve two masters, trying to serve the British, eventually Sir Hudson Lowe, uh, and trying to serve his his very famous and 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 and. and a man with a big ego, uh, uh, you know, Napoleon Bonaparte. So, Omer, in fact, later writes, I never sought the situation. It was in some degree assigned me, and most assuredly, I should have shrunk from the acceptance of it had I contemplated the possibility of even of being even remotely called on to compromise the principles either of an officer or a gentleman. Before, however, I had long been scorched upon the rock of St. Helena. I was taught to appreciate the embarrassments of my situation. I soon saw that I must either become accessory to vexations for which there was no necessity or incur suspicions of no very comfortable nature. Well, Dr. Verling of whom I've written extensively, you know, will eventually say essentially the same thing many years later. At any rate, O'Meara and, 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 and uh, Napoleon and his entourage uh, get onto the Northumberland. They, they're sailing for St. Helene or St. Helena, and they were joined by a company of the Royal Artillery. Of course, each the company had its own surgeon, a young Irish doctor named James Roche Verling. Uh, and unlike an awful lot of medical people in the British military, Dr. Verling actually had graduated as a doctor of medicine from from Edinburgh University, and had and, and in this case had served in the Peninsular uh, Arms, and he had a pretty high rank of assistant surgeon. You got to remember, you know, we talk about <clears throat> doctors and medical personnel, but there was all sorts of people, especially in the military, who were not technically doctors, had not actually gone to medical school, had had received some other kind of 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 medical training or quasi medical training. And uh, that's something we need to to always uh, keep in mind. So, you know, they, by the, and by the way, parenthetically, Verling and Napoleon meet on the ship, and they talk. Uh, Verling speaks Italian, and Napoleon speaks Italian. Italian's his first language, remember, not French. So they get along, they chit-chat some. As far as I can tell, there was, you know, nothing of great substance discussed or anything. They didn't become you know, great buddies, but, but they did develop a, a, a a pleasant relationship and Verling got to know some of Napoleon's staff as, as well. And and this becomes a factor uh, later on. So, you know, Verling is, is, uh, you know, assigned, you know, to his medical duties. And for three years he does this and, and, and Elmera, uh, is, uh, uh, napoleon 's uh, uh a doctor uh, but 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 o'mera you know runs runs afoul of Sir hudson Lowe Sir Hudson Lowe becomes absolutely convinced that Omera is way too much uh, napoleon 's man uh, and uh Eventually, he has, and I think we've mentioned this before, in August of 1818, Omera is court-martialed and, and forced to leave the island. Now, this is a major blow to Napoleon. By the way, we were talking about Napoleon's uh, uh, depression. You know, for, for at least three years, he had a doctor whom he trusted as a medical person. Omera was apparently a, 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 a good doctor uh, for Napoleon, now, Napoleon's health is relatively good in, in those first three years. So, you know, there's less way to 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 judge, uh, you know, O'Mara's abilities there than later on. Uh, but he trusted them, And it was that trust, which is O'Mara's downfall. And so, you know, Verling gets a letter on the 25th of July, 1818. Sir, Mr. O'Mara, surgeon of the Royal Navy, who was in attendance on General Bonaparte, having been removed from that situation in consequence of orders from his majesty's government i have to request that you will immediately proceed to longwood to afford your medical assistance to general bonaparte and the foreign persons under detention with him there to be stationed until i may receive the instructions of his majesty's government on the subject i am etc uh, signed uh, hudson low and of course that letter is is one of the many many letters in in the Lowe collection in in the british uh uh library that that i alluded to in in yesterday's uh, uh session now now you know Lowe was very straightforward in in, in appointing uh, verling uh he probably was aware uh that that uh, napoleon and verling had 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 gotten along and, and and by the way i mentioned verling could speak italian but he also spoke at least some french so there was going to be a relative ease of communication. Uh, the the older surgeon, a, a man named Walter Henry, who 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 was uh, an assistant surgeon to the sixty sixth regiment, uh, wrote wrote uh, to 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 uh, to Low, I think, uh, or wrote in his his memoirs anyway uh, that uh, Doctor Verling is an esteemed friend of mine and. And I know that he is well qualified in every respect for the duty on which he was employed, being a clever and well-educated man of gentlemanly and prepossessing manners and long military experience. Uh, other people who have studied this and other people of the time thought that, that Napoleon was, was getting a pretty good deal uh, with, uh, with Verling. Uh, Louis Marchand writes in his memoirs, The Grand Marshal and Comte de Mothalon urged the emperor not to remain any longer without a doctor, and suggested the one who would replace Dr. Amara, Dr. Verling. But the emperor flatly refused. This refusal was not aimed at the doctor, but at the governor, that's Lo, who with this doctor would have had a man of his own choosing. The emperor considered Dr. Verling a perfectly honest man. He had spoken with him several times on the Northumberland, either at the table when he was invited there or during his strolls on deck. And and other uh people uh around Napoleon uh encouraged uh Napoleon to to accept uh Verling. But but Verling was having having none of it. And uh, uh or excuse me, Napoleon was having none of it. Uh, Verling was one of Lowe's puppets and he was not going to to see him. Nevertheless, you know, Verling Berling has uh, a, a a room uh, at Longwood to be in attendance uh, uh, on uh, on Napoleon. Uh, the 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 British government's official policy, at least, appears to be that Napoleon should have a doctor of his own choosing. But you know, there's not a whole lot of doctors around there uh, that. Uh, that he can choose. So he approaches, uh, a, a man named Dr. John Stoko, who had been uh, the surgeon on, on the ship, the conqueror and whom Omera had actually introduced to Napoleon. And so, you know, uh, uh, in, uh, in, in, in January, uh, of 1819, a Napoleon, uh, Gets gets ill, and uh, you know there's there's a you know move to 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 send a doctor and and uh, and, and and Bertrand and Montalon request Doctor Stoko to attend the Emperor. Uh, in fact, Bertrand sends sends a letter at one o'clock in the morning uh, on on the nineteenth. Sir, the Emperor has just had a sudden and violent attack. You were the only medical man at present in this country in whom he has shown any confidence. I beg you not to lose a moment in hastening to Longwood. On your arrival, ask for me. I hope you will arrive in the course of the night. And, of course, I call these letters, but they're, you know, sent by by, by courier on fast horse. Uh, well, you know, the word comes down from, from low, you know, yes, uh, 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 re- go do this. But Stokoe's order to report to Dr. Verling, who was supposed to accompany Napoleon. But Napoleon won't see Verling, And so Stokoe sees him on his own. A little bit later, Count Bertrand presents Stokoe with a list of eight conditions under which Napoleon would accept him, Stokoe, as his personal physician. These articles provided for Stokoe to make appropriate medical reports, reports of any activities that called upon him to exercise his patriotic duty, you know, such as an escape plan, but to otherwise serve as Napoleon's doctor without interference from the 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 British now Stokoe saw nothing in those articles incompatible with the honor of a British officer and gentleman. He attended to Napoleon and forward the forwarded the list to to Admiral Plampin, who who was his immediate uh, superior. And. At first, it looked like this might go over okay, Uh, But things began to go south very, very quickly uh, the aide de camp to Verling, uh, Colonel Gork- uh, Gorkor, uh, consults with uh, Verling. Letters are flying back and forth. And Stokoe was ultimately not only denied the opportunity to serve as Napoleon's doctor, but he's court-martialed and he's drummed out of the service for all of this. You know, he had, he had understood the possibility, uh, he, he he understood that he needed to be very, very careful, but it didn't do him any good uh, uh you know no matter how caref- careful you are sometimes uh you know stuff happens and and uh so uh the uh, his his career uh, is ruined now now Verling, of course is is there he can see all this this going on uh and so he could see the same thing happening to him. I'll take a breather here so you can you can jump in if you wish.
0: Okay. Um, well, I know I'm sort of jumping back a bit here, but uh, I was reading a little bit before about Barry O'Meara and uh, what he did after his departure. He was apparently quite unhappy, the fact that he'd been sent away, and he wasn't going to take it lightly. True Irishman, he decided to stick it <laughs> to the authorities. Um, uh, it says, on Amira's departure, his former patient gave him a letter asking Jerome Bonaparte, or Eugénie de Beauharnais, the Emperor's stepson, to pay him £4,000 and also made arrangement for him to have a pension of £320 a year. The problem about the true state of Bonaparte's health is further complicated by the conduct of General Gourgaud, who left St Helena in March 1818. We talked about that yesterday. When he got to London, he told Henry Goldburn, Under Secretary for War, that reports about Bonaparte's failing health were unfounded, that he could escape whenever he chose, and that O'Meara had been duped by his patient. But only a few months later, Gourgaud made a complete recantation and wrote to Napoleon's wife, Marie Louise, as well as to the Russian Emperor, that Bonaparte was dying and that Lowe was killing him by pinpricks. What does emerge with startling clarity from the O'Meara affairs is that from the moment he left St Helena, the Irishman made it his life's mission to get his own back on Hudson Lowe. Even during the voyage home, when his ship touched at Ascension, he told various naval officers whom he met there that Lowe had tried to persuade him to kill the prisoner. Arrived in England, he repeated the insinuations in a letter to the Admiralty, with the result that he was dismissed from the Navy. Only temporarily daunted, he produced early in 1819 a pamphlet attacking Lowe and went on after Bonaparte's death to publish in 1822 his voice from St. Helena, consisting in part of a sustained and powerful denunciation of Lowe. Coming from the doctor who, alone of the British, had been close to and tended Bonaparte for nearly three years, the book had a great success, brought temporary fame to O'Meara and ruined Lowe's already tarnished reputation. Byron gave two lines to the vengeful doctor in his 1823 poem, The Age of Bronze, and the stiff surgeon who maintained his cause hath lost his place and gained the world's applause. Nice.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm a big fan of Byron. And by the way, make a note to yourself. We can do a little program on the on the romantic poets and napoleon because i've I've written several articles on that as well and that's that's a great deal of fun i would enjoy that
0: we don't need uh, any more romantic poets when we've got you and i david
1: well yes that's true but i'm not sure that you and i can compare with lord byron i'm a i'm a big fan of lord byron uh well you know you're 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 right america of course uh you know does go on to do this there's 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 even uh and I forget the, the, the whole story now, so forgive me, but but there's even a confrontation in London years later and a challenge to a duel if I recall. Uh I don't recall the, the whole the whole story anymore, uh but but there's an awful lot of 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 uh animosity between the two and, and Omera comes out pretty good, you know, uh out of all of this. And and Omera's uh, you know, a pretty good source of information uh for the kinds of things uh, that were going on uh in uh in Saint Helena, but you know back back to sort of the storyline uh, uh Napoleon needs a doctor Omer is gone Stokoe was is, do- is gone uh, uh, Verling has already been technically assigned to him uh, and we begin to see movement on the part of Napoleon's staff. To 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 find a way to convince Verling to accept conditions that were similar to those uh, offered uh, by by uh, Stoko. uh For example, on January nineteenth, Bertrand meets with Verling, and and Verling relates and relates in his journal. and And I want to parenthetically remind you that you know the 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 journal of Doctor Verling. Uh, the original of which is actually in the Archive National in in Paris. Uh, typed type transcripts are available in a couple of libraries. The Bodleian Library at Oxford is where I first came across it. Uh, but I've now, for the first time in English, uh, you know, published the entire journal and in the book Napoleon and Doctor Verling on St. Helena, and I believe it's the last known journal or diary uh, from the people who were there at that time to be published. So in some ways, I, I consider that, you know, kind of a significant, very definitely a significant contribution that, that, that I've made. It's also been published in French translation, interestingly enough. Uh, at any rate, on the 19th, uh, uh, Verding relates, he, uh, that would be uh, Bertrand, then professed to feel sentiments of goodwill towards me and expatiated upon the praise I was entitled to from everybody at the present moment. He then produced a letter from Sir H. Lowe stating that he had received orders from Earl Bathurst to remove O'Mara and to replace him by Mr. Baxter, but in case of the polling disliking Mr. Baxter's attendance that he should have the choice of any medical man on the island but that he had sent one in the meantime that even a momentary want should not be felt. Napoleon declined at that time, making any choice, invited as he was, and declared he would never see you. That would be Verling, who, if you had not been sent here, we should have all pointed out from our knowledge of you aboard our ship. Our influence has been repeatedly used to induce him to see you and in vain, even when he thought he was going to die. The governor now receives from Lord Bathurst's letter. Napoleon has made a choice, obstacles are thrown in the way. He is about to refuse him. Excuse me. The correspondence is now becoming warm. The governor is a man who never feels a blow until he is knocked down. He perseveres in wishing to force you upon him. And I warn you that motives will soon be attributed to him for which this line of conduct in which your name unavoidably would be implicated and in a manner in which it ought not to appear. At any rate, so that's an effort to alert Berling as to what's what's going on. Madame Bertrand tries to convince uh Verling to become Napoleon's doctor, which he dutifully uh reports to uh to Sir Hudson Lowe. Uh and and remember, you know, Verling is seeing Napoleon's uh, entourage. Uh in April, this is a few months later, April uh sixth, uh, Verling writes about a meeting on the 1st of April, uh, again, uh, t- too too, too low, memorandum of a proposal made by Count de Manthelon. Having had a reason to visit Count de he took an opportunity when we were alone of introducing the subject of Napoleon choosing a surgeon. He said, I must be aware that, had he, that he had long endeavored to fix Napoleon's choice on me, and how flattering it would be to me should I be chosen, notwithstanding that I was the person selected by the governor as this must be attributed to the favorable impressions made by my conduct during the eight months I had been at Longwood. He informed me that four positions which the governor might perhaps accept had this morning been made, and if accepted, Napoleon would instantly choose a surgeon, but he could not think of him uh, of having near him l'homme de le governor or the man of the governor. By this he meant any person whose views of promotion and self-interest might prompt him to act under the governor's influence. If, on the contrary... I was willing to become L'homme d'Hopur, the the, the man of the emperor, and attach myself uh, uh, to him. He, Count Manthelon, was authorized to make a proposal to me, which he advised me to accept, as I should at once obtain a degree of his confidence by avowing the motions of making my fortune, a motive more intelligible to him than any vague declaration of admiration of the man. And and he goes on to say, listen, you know, he was going to give me an allowance of twelve thousand francs a year, which by the way was a lot of money to be paid monthly. Uh, and and uh, uh he was going to advance uh, substantial amounts of money uh to the House of Bering in in in, in England, uh, uh which uh, the interest of which would e- equal the present pay from the British government. In other words, he was going to make sure that Verling was, was set up for life, that he didn't have to worry about whether Napoleon could really continue uh, to pay this 12,000 know, francs a year. Uh, and, 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 and by the way, Verling, and he points this out in this, in, in this memo, uh, that he was making a pound a day uh, while he was on, on, on the island. So so he, tell, he, he told me Napoleon would not require for me anything which would compromise me with the government or any tribunal or even a public opinion. That Mr. O'Bara had never been required to do anything of this nature. I should be able, to, when I saw him, to judge the state of his liver when he himself thought it was much diseased, that in my bulletins my report might lean rather toward an aug- augmentation than a diminution of the malady, that I might draw the line rather above than below, as he was still in hopes that the strength of things might summon him from St Helena nevertheless uh you know this this is this is not going to work and 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 the the soap opera uh continues napoleon or rather verling has fallen into a situation from which there was really no escape other than leaving longwood and with any luck uh, leaving St Helena uh, and so so Verling ends up being the doctor who might have been. And 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 by the way, the, the role that, that he played leads to a lot of interesting what-if con- considerations. He was clearly one of the best qualified doctors to uh, available to Napoleon. He was certainly superior to the doctor I'll talk about in a second, Antomashi. And if Napoleon had accepted him, or if Hudson-Lowe had accepted the conditions Napoleon wanted, which were really quite reasonable, the quality of Napoleon's health care would have been considerably improved. If you believe that Napoleon died of stomach cancer, then maybe the best that could have been hoped for was was greater comfort. I don't think they could have cured that. But if you believe that Napoleon died out of other causes, including, of course, poisoning, then the quality of health care could have made a difference. A removal uh, from the island for health reasons, the recognition of symptoms of arsenic. Either was more likely with Verling in attendance and either would have potentially made a considerable difference to Napoleon's fate. Verling was literally the right person at the right time, but circumstances prevented him from achieving his own potential destiny. Instead, as, as many of us uh, all, all, already know, uh, Napoleon uh, had requested... Uh, cardinal fesch who who we mentioned yesterday uh, to to send a French doctor, and the British were willing to accept at this point a French doctor for god 's sake, get the man a doctor. Uh, public opinion hearing Napoleon is sick and, and not not being given medical care uh, would be would be awful uh, so napoleon 's family sends Francesco Antomarci who arrived in late 1819 Francesco Antomarci was was a butcher Francesco Antomarci had little training had little understanding of real medicine and was one of the worst imaginable doctors that could have been doctors in quotes that could have been sent Uh, To 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 see Napoleon, I think Napoleon would have been better off if the if if the British veterinarian had 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 seen him, quite frankly. And Napoleon knew it. Napoleon understood this guy was a raving incompetent, just like the, the priest and the priest assistant that was sent at the same time that we talked about yesterday. You know, Napoleon thought, you know what? what bumbling fools they've sent me. Now Antomarchi did some good things by the way he could Antimarchi consulted with with uh with with Verling uh a a a a, a rather uh embarrassing meeting because Antomarchi understood that Napoleon would not see uh, Verling uh it was an, an embarrassing uh, meeting and, and, and in fact Antomarchi even uh, did mentions it in in his uh own memoirs which are interesting reading to say the least uh but Antomarchi does convince napoleon for example to take up gardening and and that's good for for your health you know you read these, these things on getting exercise gardening uh you know is is not like running but it, but it but it but it's useful you're outside you're moving around you're stretching your muscles and so on uh and and it begins almost to look like in, in, in late eighteen nineteen, early eighteen twenty, it begins to look like that Napoleon might begin to to get his health uh back. But but that's not going to be the case. We all well understand that. Napoleon uh his health begins to get worse. I think you were looking at some of Vincent Cronin's descriptions of some of the things that happened. Uh he he repeatedly uh has extremely sharp pains uh a couple of three doctors actually take a look at him some other british doctors are sent over just to do some consulting work and including including some 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 very good uh uh doctors uh dr arnold for example a surgeon of the 20th regiment uh comes in and 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 has a look and and, and Arnaud uh, basically says that 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 nothing Napoleon has is is very serious, uh, but Napoleon is is getting sicker and sicker. Uh, he he's fighting hard. He, he he doesn't want to die. He doesn't want to give the British the 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 benefit of having him him die. Uh, Napoleon's entourage, of course, slowly but surely begins to realize during eighteen twenty and in the first few months of eighteen twenty one slowly begins to realize that uh oh this is this is really serious. Now a lot of them, including Napoleon, uh, may think that it's that it's uh cancer. Uh, Napoleon though does accuse the British of poisoning him, of course, as 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 we all know. Uh but it it gets it gets grimmer uh, and 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 grimmer, and and uh, the the entourage uh, is is getting uh, depressed, uh, and uh, Napoleon, I'm I'm sure is 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 getting depressed. Uh, in in early 1821, uh, he he's bedridden for something like four weeks in a row. He he works on his will uh he 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 writes one tears it up uh prepares another one uh, he's unable to keep food down he continues to have these sharp pains <clears throat> that i've mentioned uh and and he, he he does finally on the 13th of april after being in bed for for four or five weeks uh begins to write his final will he 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 jots down a few notes, and, th- and then he dictates. Uh, I think to Monthalon. He in a few several days he goes through a, two or three drafts. Uh, he, he talks about dying, as we mentioned yesterday, that dying in 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 the uh, uh, apostolic Roman religion, in the bosom of which he had been born, and whether or not this was a a uh, you know foxhole conversion or not, we 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 talked about uh, yesterday. He he wants to be to 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 have his remains uh on the banks of the Seine. uh uh, uh and by the way uh, i think we've talked about this before uh a lot of people talk about his ashes they they wanted his ashes uh you know the sandra but but in fact the uh, uh, the french you know word actually means remains there was no actual talk of of cremation uh he he uh he he dallies out money, you know, uh, Bertrand gets half a million francs, his valet Marchand four hundred thousand, other other sums to, to other servants, uh, you know, generals, uh, children of generals, an awful lot people back in his from his childhood. Uh and you know, he's worth two or three hundred million francs uh from property and other holdings. Uh and he, and, he, and he he gives pretty much all of it away. Of course, uh, uh, he even he even gives Fanny uh, uh, a, a diamond necklace, I think, uh, and 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 he actually allows Fanny uh, to to enter his room. Uh, he's 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 continually uh, doling doling out uh, his his uh, his money. But the, end, but the end draws near. Uh, people are aware of it. There's essentially a, a death watch uh, going on. And, and finally, on the 5th of May, uh, a little before 6 o'clock in the evening, Napoleon passes away. He had been one of the most powerful men in history but he died on an obscure little island far from his family, surrounded by a small group of friends and servants. And he was only 51 years old.
0: According to tradition, just before Napoleon died, twice he asked Marchand, what is the name of my son? And Marchand replied, Napoleon. Monthelon claimed that Napoleon's last words were France, Armée, Tête d'Armée, Josephine, which I kind of put into the realm of Napoleonic mythology. I'm not sure I really take that as seriously being his last words, but it's beautiful nonetheless. Do you take it seriously?
1: There are... There are several versions of what Napoleon said or, or, or didn't say as his last words. People's last words are sometimes difficult to understand. Uh, sometimes they make no sense. And if they're whispered into somebody's ear, they they can be misinterpreted or deliberately misinterpreted. And, you know, there are lots of last words that have made a difference. Alexander the Great's last words, for example, when supposedly he was asked as he was dying, who shall who shall succeed you? And Alexander is said to have said, whoever is the strongest. But only one person heard him say that. and, And for all we know, Alexander named somebody that that he didn't like, and so the guy came up with that. I really don't know. Uh, It's it's hard to say what Napoleon really said. Uh, I could well imagine the Josephine anyway, because as we've said before, for all of Napoleon's perfectly legitimate love for his second wife, Marie Louise, I can imagine... That lying on his deathbed, knowing that the life was fading from him, that his thoughts might have gone back to josephine but i I don't think we'll ever really truly a hundred percent know you know what what the man actually said, but I will say that the pettiness continues even after death, although at the same time the, the British do themselves a little bit proud. Lowe decided, and it was a good decision, that Napoleon would be buried in Geranium Valley, not not too far away from, from Longwood, but a very, very beautiful area, uh, famously a big willow tree, you see the willow tree uh, constantly, and, and and images of Napoleon's uh, original burial place. Uh, it's a place where where Napoleon would would sometimes go to enjoy, you know, some solitude, some quiet moments to think about life, to think about what he had been through. I, I suppose uh, it was a very peaceful area. It was secluded, and so it was it was a good choice. And and I'll I'll give. Low credit, I'm sure he consulted with Napoleon's people and, 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 and came up with that. But then there's the question of the gravestone. And, and this is, you know, you can be the biggest apologist in the world for the British. or Forgive me for using the word apologist. You can just be as pro-British as you can on the Napoleonic period and think the British did everything right and Napoleon was lucky not to have been shot. Whatever you want. Take your take your pick, but this this is unbelievably absurd. What are we going to put on the gravestone? Obviously, Napoleon's followers said, "Put the simple words, Emperor Napoleon. That's who he was." In death, give him the dignity of the height of of his achievement. And not everybody wants that. Thomas Jefferson famously, you know, uh, didn't want president of the United States in, in, on, on his tombstone. You know, he thought he more importantly to, to list president of, 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 of uh, University of Virginia. But clearly Napoleon would have wanted that. But Lowe said, listen, you're going to have Napoleon Buonaparte or you're not going to have anything. So it was it was nothing. Napoleon was buried in an unmarked grave. But they did give him a good funeral. On the 9th of May, a solemn procession of British soldiers and Napoleon's followers took Napoleon's casket with the drums beating down a long path to to, to Geranium Valley. Low, as I as I point out in Napoleon for Dummies, Lowe, Lowe had pulled out all the stops. No one would ever accuse Lowe, and, and, and I agree except for the, the, the name on the thing, no one would ever accused him of not giving Napoleon a decent burial. He was in a tin coffin, which was placed inside a mahogany coffin, which was placed inside of a lead coffin, which was inside another mahogany coffin, He was given all the honors of of a person of his stature. Bands played funeral music. The local artillery, the ships in the harbor were firing salutes. Soldiers stood at attention all along the path that they followed. Napoleon was finally lowered into a concrete grave covered by a large stone, submitted into place. A permanent guard was stationed at the gravesite to make sure there were no vandals. By the way, that, that site is now French territory. Marchand, Louis-Joseph Marchand, wrote that the scene was overwhelming in its sorrow and grief. But the French writer, Francois René Chateaubriand commented that Napoleon was buried by the British as though they feared that he would never be sufficiently imprisoned. That phrase could, could really sum up, you know, the whole St. Helena experience. Well, Marchand says the scene was overwhelming in its sorrow and grief. And the last words, in of, of Bertrand which diary which which said that you know Napoleon would, would someday you know return were prophetic. In July of eighteen forty, the Prince de Joinville, who was the son of King Louis Philippe of France, led a delegation that included Bertrand, Marchand, Lacaze's son, and some others to St. Helena to recover the body of the emperor. When the coffin was opened, his body was found to be perfectly preserved. He looked as though he had been asleep all those years. By the way, a possible symptom of arsenic, which is a preservative. The body was returned to France on a a ship accompanied by the son of the king. And then it was sent, once it hit the coast, on its final journey to Paris. And and I want to to close this session, and you will forgive me. It will not necessarily be easy for me because I do, in fact, get emotional on this subject. Sip a little of my medication here to help out. I want to read to you what I wrote in Napoleon's Road to Glory in the epilogue. So please bear with me. It's about a page. The body of the emperor slowly made its way by steamship along the Seine. Everywhere, the crowds gathered to pay their respects. At Rouen, the boat passed through an arc of triumph as 100-cannon salute was fired. At Caborie, Marshal Soult came to pay his respects. He would be followed by the great Surgeon Larré, whom Napoleon once called the most virtuous man I have ever known. On 15 December, the casket was placed upon a large funeral chariot more than 10 meters high. As the procession inched its way down the Champs-Élysées in Paris, Massive crowds of people from all walks of life lined the street on this cold day with temperature well below freezing to pay tribute to the man who had become a legend. Behind the casket marched members of his Grande Armee, his old guard, joyous at the return of their leader, reliving the glory of Austerlitz. Behind the casket was also the young Prince de Janville. When the Emperor passed, shouts of Viva rang out. Long live the Emperor. Just a minute. Cannon fired salutes. Flags were dipped in honor. The bells of Notre Dame were joined by bells throughout Paris. The Emperor passed through the Arc de Triomphe accompanied by another 21 cannon salute. Then he slowly made his way to Les Invalides. There the king's son presented the emperor to the king. Gorgon placed the emperor's hat on the coffin. The ceremony over, it was now the people's turn. For weeks, they lined up in the bitter cold. Napoleon had always been popular with the common people. Then, as they do today, they paid their respects by visiting his tomb. The return of Napoleon's body was unlike any other event in history. This was only appropriate, for there had been no person like Napoleon in history. The German poet Goethe wrote, It could be said that he was in a permanent state of enlightenment which is why his fate was more important than the world has ever seen or is likely to see after him. Even Talleyrand said his career was the most extraordinary that has occurred for 1,000 years. On 2 April 1861, after completion of his tomb under the gilded dome of Les Ambalides, Napoleon was laid to his final resting place on the banks of the Seine, amongst the French people whom I have loved so well. And if you go today, I can assure you, you will never see a more magnificent tomb.